Welcome, barbarians, to the GM prep episode for session zero of our Just Barbarian Things actual play of the Alien RPG. The game includes themes of fear, horror, including body horror, and violence set in a dystopian sci-fi universe. In the GM prep episodes, you will hear me, Rainy, your game mother, and there will be spoilers. You have been warned. Hello, barbarians, and welcome to this, my game prep for our little playthrough of the Alien RPG. So just a heads up, obviously, if you're going to be a player in my game, or perhaps a player in someone else's game who's using the starter set or any of the pre-written adventures, maybe don't watch this or listen to it. Just saying. Um, but if you're interested in the system, if you are thinking about running the game, um, or if you're not the type of player who's spoiled by spoilers, then hang out and let's see what we can figure out. So I don't know the system. This is new to me. So the what you'll see me go through is kind of me just figuring it out. And especially since I'm going to be running this in Roll20, since our game group is still remote um, during the pandemic, uh, yeah, we'll see how we can learn this system through Roll20 instead of through the book itself. I do have the PDF, though, if we need to fall back on something to reference. All right, so let's see. Obviously, I mean, chat's in the normal spot. I'm not really worried about any of that. We're going to be going through this. This is the journal tab that has all of our reference information on it. Here's the scenario we're going to have to learn. Um, I don't think there's anything in the compendium for this game yet. I don't think so. And then we will build a playlist as we figure out what's going on. And then these are the decks that you see here. So we'll learn a little bit about those. And then these are the dice, the custom dice they built for the game, which we should be able to control through the character sheet. So I'm not super worried about those. All right, so we have some really cool art, some background. All right, the alien saga is about more than otherworldly beasts. It's about humbling man for his own hubris. It's about motherhood and family, loss and sacrifice. It wrestles with the questions of artificial intelligence and faith. The story of Alien is about creators and their creations struggling for dominance over each other. Corporate greed and avarice, superior firepower, fancy technology aren't enough to protect you from the horrors of the unknown. All right, cool, cool, cool. All right, so this gives background as to like kind of the world that this takes place in like what corporations there are, what the factions are, and kind of where they fit. Okay, which is a good time for us to probably take a look at this, which is our star map. So this game comes with a super huge star map. Like this is if you're looking at the whole thing, obviously, right? But you can barely read any of it. You have to like really zoom in here. It's bananas how detailed this is, which I think is pretty cool. So hopefully we get to use that a little bit in the game. All right, so breaking it down, 2183, destruction of Hadley's Hope Colony, blah, blah, blah. Okay, 
So that gives us all of our background. Oh, this is a timeline. So like history from like modern day to game day. Kind of like what people do in space. That's cool. All right. Each player in the game except one takes the role of a player character. Pretty straightforward. They can be space colonists, space truckers, marines, something else. All right. You decide what they think and feel, what they say and do, but not what happens to them. The game mother or GM um, is who describes the game. So that's me. I'm the game mother. Very cool. Game modes. All right. So here's the two things to know. We're playing in a scenario that's cinematic play. So cinematic play, they say, emulates the dramatic arc of an alien film. It's designed to be played in a single session, although I've heard that the scenarios that are out right now take a very long time. That they can be played a little faster, but they're not really one-shots. Um, they're high stakes, fast and brutal. Inter-character conflict is likely, um, and survival is not guaranteed. There is a campaign like mode that you can do. Since we haven't played this game before, I didn't want to jump right into a longer term play. Um, campaign play, they know, can be brutal and deadly, but it's more survivable than cinematic play because it's not built around that kind of drama of the danger as much. All right. All right. Space horror, sci-fi action, sense of wonder. Those are the key themes. So pervasive darkness and tension, primal fears, action, roller coaster of action, fast and brutal combat, and questions of creation, destiny, and place in the universe. Yeah, I think that's spot on for what it's based on. All right, so tools of the game, character sheets. We have those in the scenario, I believe. Think. Yeah, player characters right here. All right, in the alien universe, nowhere is safe. Sooner or later, you'll end up in situations where the outcome is uncertain. Then it's time to break out the dice. There are two types of custom six-sided dice for the game, base dice and stress dice. Ten of each are included in the box set. Obviously, it's a roll 20, so instead we have digital versions of those. You roll the dice when you perform a dramatic action that might determine if your PC lives or dies. All right. So both sets of dice, including like the digital dice you'll see I rolled on here, um, have a face hugger symbol on the sixth side. Rolling a symbol usually means that an effect of some kind is triggered, for example, when succeeding at using a skill. Stress dice also have the symbol on the one side. Rolling the symbol triggers panic in your character. How this all works in detail, you'll learn in the rolling dice section, which is right here. <laughs> um, so the rules ask you to roll d6, d3, 2d6, and d66. Right. If you're rolling a d6, you're rolling a base die and reading the number, ignoring the symbols. d3, you roll a d6 and divide by two rounding up. 
So the nice thing about roll 20 is hopefully it should handle a lot of this for us. So that shouldn't be a question. 2d6, roll 2d6s and add the results. Fair enough. And then the d66 means you roll 2d6s and choose, uh, make the first die the 10s and the second die the 1s. So you'll get a result between 11 and 66. Weird, but okay, cool. I wonder when we do that. All right, so there's two types of custom cards. There are initiative cards. We have those here. We use for drawing initiative in combat. Personal agenda cards, these are used in the scenario. Uh, players don't get to look at these until the GM lets them do that. So we'll get into that, I'm sure, as we go through the game. I like this section of what is role playing? It's a weird spot for it to go. Okay, so got through the intro. Okay, that's kind of the player facing information, core concepts. All right, skills, knowledge and abilities you've acquired, acquired during your life. Uh-huh. Skills are numbered on level from zero to five. Higher numbers are better. If you don't have a skill, you can roll it, but you obviously don't get a plus, you get zero as your modifier. Attributes are one to five instead of zero to five. Okay, so strength is muscle power and brawn, agility, body control and speed, wits, sensory perception and intelligence, empathy, personal charisma and manipulation. Okay, those seem pretty straightforward. Androids are an important part of the alien role-playing game, and you can play one as your player character. Androids can have any career and may be open about their nature or secretly pose as humans. Androids work a little bit differently for humans. They have generally higher strength and agility. They can't push skill rolls. They don't suffer stress and don't have stress levels. They don't panic, and they suffer damage differently. Okay, so... The way they handle tension is the game, in the game is through stress level. Stress starts at zero and increases as you push dice rolls, which again, androids can't do, or by experiencing frightening or stressful situations. All right, health is equal to your strength score. Talents can modify that. When you suffer damage, health is reduced. If your health drops to zero, you are broken and suffer a critical injury. Okay. Cool. All right, cinematic agendas, because we're not playing campaign. So in cinematic play, the PC's agendas are predetermined by the scenario, such as Chariot of the Gods included in the set. At the beginning of each of the three acts of the scenario, the GM gives each PC a card with a new agenda for the act. Agendas are hidden, and you should not show them to other players or write them down on your character sheet. At the end of each act, the GM evaluates the PC's actions. If you took specific actions to further your agenda, despite personal risk or sacrifice, you're awarded a story point. Story points can be used to get bonus successes in dice rolls. And we'll learn more about those in the actual scenario information. So the role-playing game is about a small group of people facing unknown and horrifying dangers in the cold darkness of space. To survive, you need to find someone you trust but also be careful who you turn your back to. In game terms, your PC can have one buddy and one rival from among the other PCs. You can only have one of each. 
Your relationships are important for the GM as you can use them to create interesting situations in the game. In the cinematic starter, the pre-generated character descriptions will indicate buddies and rivals that they have. The GM makes the call when a player versus player situation escalates beyond the point of no return. When the GM calls PvP, the players involved play out the conflict to its conclusion. After that, the PC who has turned traitor, if they are still alive, becomes an NPC and is now under the control of the GM. The player is given a new PC to play. All right. That's another thing. So obviously in this scenario, there are five player characters. I have four players that are going to be in the game. So I'm planning on making these NPCs available as backup characters, depending on how deadly things get. So I will have to read through those to be aware of which ones will work or not, or if any changes need to be made. To survive, you need the right gear. In, let's see, you need an M314 motion tracker, an MK50 compression suit, an M41A pulse rifle. Those are the kind of things that can mean the difference between life and death. So you write down all the items you're car- carrying on your character sheet. Fair enough. If it's not on the sheet, you don't have it. Okay, fair enough. Signature item. In addition to your normal gear, you have a signature item, a small item that's not of much practical use, but it has value to you and says something about your character. Common examples include a patch, a cap, or photo of a loved one. Once per act in cinematic play, you can interact with your signature item to reduce your stress level. Signature items are usually tiny and don't encumber you at all consumables. You don't need to track consumables at all times. In the confines of a functional spaceship, orbital station, or planet-side colony, you likely have the consumables you need. The GM lets you know when resources are scarce and it's time to start tracking them. You can track each of your four consumables on your character sheet using a supply rating. Higher is better. At regular intervals, you need to make a supply roll This means rolling a number of stress dice equal to the current supply rating, up to a maximum of six dice. For every facehugger rolled, the supply rating is decreased by one. When the supply rating reaches zero, you're out of the consumable and you're entering a world of hurt. The effects of lacking air, food, and water are explained in other hazards. When to make supply rolls. If air becomes in question, they roll for that every turn and after every strenuous activity. If water is a limited resource, they roll once per day or after a strenuous activity. Food is rolled once per day if that's a dwindling resource. And power is going to be situational depending on the gear used. Makes sense. All right, encumbrance. You can carry a number of regular-sized items equal to double your strength rating. That's good to know. I should take note of that. All right. Heavy and light items. If an item is designated as heavy, it counts as two regular items. So it would take up two rows on the character sheet. Um, Some heavy items count as three or even four normal items. The gear list will indicate this. At the opposite end of the spectrum, there are items that are designated as light. They count as half of a regular item. So you can have two light items on one row of your sheet. Some light items count as a quarter normal item. Okay. Tiny items. 
Tiny items are so small they don't affect encumbrance at all. If the item can be hidden in a closed fist, it's tiny. Tiny items also need to be listed on your character sheet. You can temporarily carry up to twice your normal encumbrance limit, so four times your strength. If you're over-encumbered, you must make a mobility roll when you want to run or crawl in a round of combat. If you fail, you must either drop what you're carrying or not move. Okay. Skills. Twelve skills. Heavy machinery, stamina, close combat, mobility, ranged combat, piloting, observation, comm tech, survival, command, manipulation, medical aid. Cool. Seems straightforward. All right. So when you use a skill, describe what a character does or says, then add your skill level to your score and grab that many base dice. If you have stress, add to the dice pool, add those to the dice pool as well. Then roll all the dice together. For your action to succeed, you must roll at least one of the, oh, one six. If not, your action fails. If you roll more than one six, you can perform stunts listed under each spell skill description. Okay, so that's, yeah, a six symbol. On the stress dice, the one is replaced by a face hugger symbol. If you roll one or more face hugger, you risk panicking. All right, if you don't roll any sixes, something goes wrong. For some reason, you failed to achieve your goal. You can elaborate on why with the help of your GM. She might even let a failed roll have further consequences to move the story forward in a dramatic way. But failure must not stop the story completely. Even when you fail, there must be a way forward, perhaps at the cost of time, risk, dollars, but still a way. A GM has final say on the consequences of failure. You can also push the roll. Oh, and they actually, they break down the math for you. Okay. If you are desperate to succeed with a dice roll, you can choose to push the roll. This means that you grab all the dice that didn't show a six and roll them again. You get a new chance to roll sixes. Usually you would only push a roll if you fail it, although you can push your roll even if you rolled a success first to get more successes and increase the effect of an attack, for example. Pushing a roll is not without risk as it increases your stress level. You can only push a roll once. If you don't succeed on your second try, you have to deal with the consequences. Uh, this can be mitigated by talents. All right, so players get to choose how to narrate what happens. I can step in if they overdo it, which I can see that happening with some people in the group. Um, but otherwise, it's up to them to describe what happens. Okay, so when they push a roll, their stress level immediately increases by one point. This gets recorded on the character sheet before they re-roll their dice. When making skill rolls, including the immediate re-roll and pushing, add a number of stress dice to your dice pool equal to your current stress level. This means stress actually increases your chances to succeed. It makes you more sharp and alert, but you can roll a face hugger. And if you get one or more of those on the stress dice, you risk panic. All right. So when you roll stress dice in a skill roll and one or more face hugger symbols come up, you cannot push the roll. Instead, you must immediately make a panic roll. A panic roll can cause your skill roll to fail no matter how many successes you rolled. Other stressful or dangerous events can also increase your stress level and trigger panic rolls. Um, if your action is firing a weapon with a magazine, rolling one or more face huggers means that you empty the magazine in addition to making a panic roll. 
In the alien role-playing game, a dice roll is a dramatic moment. Pushing rolls increases stress and triggers can trigger panic. Rolling dice too often can cause the stress mechanic to spiral out of control too quickly. With that in mind, never roll dice unless it's absolutely necessary. Save the dice for dramatic situations or tough challenges. In any other situation, you should be able to perform whatever action you wish. In the cinematic scenario, you can spend a story point to get one automatic success in a dice roll. You can spend the story point after a failed roll or even after a successful roll in order to get an extra success. You gain story points by following your personal agenda and you can never have more than three story points. Okay. So that's something I have to keep track of too and remind them about. As a rule, you have only one chance to succeed. Uh, once you have rolled the dice and pushed the roll, you can't roll again to achieve the same goal. All right. There can be modifiers. Like if they have the right gear, if the action is more or less difficult than normal, or if they have help from other people, I can change the difficulty. So here's a table of modifiers. So that's good to know. No more than three people can help with a single roll, meaning your maximum modification from assistance is plus three. That makes sense. We have a four person group, so that will work out just fine. Opposed rolls. You have to have more successes than your adversary in order to succeed. That's fine. Okay, all of these things make sense so far. Okay, this describes the abilities. I can go through those later, but they make sense. Okay, there's stunts. So that's something I have to look into. For each extra success rolled beyond the first, you can choose a stunt. Okay, so every skill has stunts that they can potentially apply. Okay, that's really good to know. So this is something I'll basically have to have just up all the time like hanging out so that I can reference it. Okay. Range categories I know are important. Okay. Time is pretty straightforward. So a round is a few seconds. A turn is a few minutes. A shift is a few hours. Stealth. In one turn, if you're in stealth mode, you can move two zones on the map and explore them, scanning for enemies, getting superficial description of the zones from the GM. If you're a team, you can explore the map individually or as a group. If you want to examine something more closely, such as accessing a data terminal, you need to stay one entire turn or longer in a single zone. In stealth mode, enemy movement is handled secretly by the GM. This is carried out each turn after your PCs have moved. NPCs must comply with the same rules of movement as PCs. So if you're playing this in real life, the GM kind of has to have a secondary map where they track this stuff. Um, since it's roll 20, we can just use stuff on the GM layer, which makes sense. In stealth mode, you will automatically detect passive enemies in the same zone. If you make no attempt to move quietly, passive enemies will automatically detect you as well. If you want to sneak past passive enemies, um, you have to roll for mobility versus observation. Active enemies may try to sneak up on you for a sneak attack. The GM informs you that a threat is moving in on you and rolls mobility for the enemy against your observation. 
If you fail, the enemy gets a free attack. You cannot spot active enemies that choose to remain hidden and don't attack you unless you have detected them using a motion tractor, tracker or the GM deems it obvious. Okay, gotcha. So, stealth. Cool. Motion trackers. A useful piece of gear in stealth mode is a motion tracker. You can use a motion tracker once per turn, and each time you use it, you must make a power supply roll. The tracker will automatically detect the presence of any large moving objects with long range up to four zones indoors and extreme range outdoors. The tracker will automatically detect the presence of any large moving objects within long range and extreme range outdoors and let you know what zone they are in. We recommend that you mark the ping of movement from a motion tracker by placing a token of some sort on the map. All right, and I think, I think there are tokens, but we'll take a look at that too. Detecting an enemy with a motion tracker does not mean that you have spotted it and can engage it in combat. So this is our initiative deck. All the players taking part in the conflict draw a card and the GM draws one card for every NPC. So basically like you shuffle these and then you would like take your initiative. One X first, two X second, etc. So this is like the worst initiative. <laughs> You can exchange initiative cards with another player. It can be done at the start of the fight or the start of a round, but never during a round. One slow action and one fast action or two fast actions. All right. These are slow actions. These are fast actions. Okay, that makes sense. I'm not going to get too far into all the combat stuff yet. All right. Stress level increases whenever you push a skill roll, fire a burst of full auto fire, suffer one or more points of damage, go without sleep, food, or water, perform a coup de grace. A scientist in your team fails to use the analysis talent. A member of your own crew attacks you. A person nearby is revealed to be an android where you encounter certain creatures or locations as determined by the scenario or GM. Whenever you make a skill roll, you must add stress dice equal to your stress level to your roll. Your stress makes you more focused, but it can also make you panic. You panic roll whenever you roll one or more facehuggers on your stress dice. You witness a friendly character suffering from a panic effect. You're pinned down by a ranged attack. You suffer a critical injury. You're attacked by a strange alien creature you've never seen before, or a truly horrifying event occurs as determined by the scenario or GM. So you roll a d6, add your current stress level, and check the table. So rolling a one through six, you keep it together. Okay, so there's consequences for high rolls. Gotcha. Stopping panic. Um, others remain in effect until one of the following happens. Another character comes to your aid and makes a command roll to snap you out of it. You're broken or a turn passes. Every full turn, that's a few minutes, spent resting in a safe area that is secured from enemies um, reduces your stress level by one point. So I think what I'm going to do, like as far as like 
making this easier for my players as I'd probably want the reference information to be lowered down in case they wanted to check any of it out. But, and then I'll select which ones they'll be able to see out of these. Um, but yeah, otherwise we'll put the game stuff on top so that if I give any handouts or they want to access player characters or whatever, those are easier to access. So, and again, these are starter set rules. I do have the full rulebook in PDF in case we need to get any deeper with it, but I figured for a scenario that should probably work fine. Um, so yeah, since it is a prep video, before we get into the scenario proper, oh, there is a token page, sweet. Totally missed it before. So people tokens, motion tracker tokens, perfect. Radar pings, got it. All right, there's lots of good information here. Got it. All right, so things that I would probably do in the starter set. I would probably give them a lot of this background information if they wanted to reference it. This is definitely all player-facing information, so I would give them access to that. I think a lot of how the how things works ones obviously. So yeah, everything except this first section would probably be fair game for me to turn on for the players. Now, obviously in the scenario, it becomes a little bit more streamlined. So they already have access to this, the information about their ship and the gear that's on the ship. Player characters will assign access to you on a per player basis because they don't all know all the details of each other. And not all of these will be played immediately. Non-player character sheets are here. Okay, so that's good if I have to move those into player characterville. But otherwise, these are reference and handout sort of information. Cool. That's the maps for the other ship. And we do have those over here as well. And then this is for me, this is basically as far as the scenario is concerned, we have these acts. And remember, every act, they have a personal agenda. We can see how they're fulfilling that and give them story points um, where it is appropriate. So I think on our next little mini session of prep, I will start going through this scenario and through this background information to see how we are going to handle all of these things. All right. Well, thanks for hanging out with me while we try to learn the system, because that's really what we did today. So we went through the basic rules. Um, and next time, we'll talk a little bit more about the specific scenario we're going to be getting into, which is Chariot of the Gods. So turns out, actually, that other than a few things that we could have given away a little bit. Not too many spoilers in this first one, since we're not going to have time to get into the scenario. Until next time. All right. Until next time, barbarians, spend your rage wisely. We'll see you then. Barbarians, 
This is Rainy from Just Barbarian Things, and this is part two of my prep for our alien RPG playthrough of Chariot of the Gods. So part one, I mostly just went through the rules. So fewer spoilers. Um, in part two, I'm going to be going through the actual prep of the scenario itself. So if you are a player in this game, if you're planning to be a player in another alien RPG game where they're going to play Chariot of the Gods, this section will have lots of spoilers. So, you know, make the best decision for yourself. So this is the GM only handout. And again, for those of you listening to the audio version, I'm looking at the scenario as it's set up on roll 20, since that's where we're playing our game, since our group is still remote. Again, three to five players plus GM. I have four players, so that should be fine. Um, four to five hours to complete at least. Everything I've heard is that this takes much longer. All right, so five pre-generated characters. That's these ones. The crew of the USCSS Montero Starfreighter. Let the players choose who they want to play. So I'll make all of these. Uh, let's see. Want them to be visible to all the players. Sorry if you can hear the maintenance people here just talking outside. It's apartment life, bro. It's the one of the downsides of living right above the area where maintenance uses as their home base. So step one, I'll let them choose their characters. When the characters have chosen their PCs, read the box text entitled, What's the Story Mother? out loud. Right, it's in the situation handout. Okay. So the part that they will hear, the box text for them, is you are space truckers on the Starfreighter USCSS Montero running the gauntlet, the trade route between Anchor Point Station and the Frontier. Your ship's cargo is packed with dozens of tanks of dangerous tritium gas that is in the process of decaying into extremely profitable helium-3. Usually, cargo such as these are towed in massive tanker modules that transport higher concentrations of the gas at a safe distance from the freight hauler. The Montero isn't rated as a commercial towing vehicle, however, and this small run is a special order for a Weyland yutani corporate account on Sutter's World, a newly established frontier colony. While the trip so far has been fairly routine, the Montero's sensors developed a glitch before you left anchor point and sporadically pinged contact with sensor reflection before you activated the displacement drive and went FTL. Your cargo run so far has been without incident. Now you're just awakening from hypersleep, ready to deliver your goods to the colony of Sutter's World. Okay, anchor point and the frontier, specifically Sutter's World. This giant freaking map. I know in, so here's the frontier, all this purple area. I know in Seth Skorkowski's video, he highlighted where these are, I think. Oh yeah, there's Sutter's World. I'm just gonna make a quick, thanks. I'm just gonna make a quick note here. It's from this one is where we're going. I'll make this prettier later. I just need to have something on the map to work with. Anchor Point Station. Okay. Don't judge me for not knowing all these locations. 
All right, I'm not going to make you sit here and listen slash watch me try to figure out where these things are. I will look it up later. Oh, there it is. Ha ha ha. Just kidding. It's right there. So that's our trick. That's the gauntlet. Okay, so I'll make that prettier so that I can kind of show the players what that standard trip is like that they're making like from this area to out here. All right, so cool. We figured that out. That's good. Show the players the map of the Montero. Okay, so let's head over there. This is their ship. This is their whole ship that they have access to. I know that, um, again, I'm going to reference Seth Skorkowski a lot because I find his videos to be very helpful. And if you're watching or listening to this as a way to prep for this game, I recommend his review of the system and specifically this scenario as well. Um, but he said to make it clear that this is like a little shuttle because it's not otherwise made very clear in the way that they have it set up. This front area is like basically the human area of the ship. And so this is the blown up version of that, of the deck. And then they wake up here and this is everything they have access to. Sorry again for all the noise outside. Eventually this will stop when we move out of this apartment and into our place. But for now, it's part of the content. All right. Hand each player their personal agenda to, for the first act to kick off the action. All right, it does say, if PCs die, you can use NPCs from the crew um, as of the other ships, especially as replacements. PCs start the scenario with no personal gear except their signature items. As the scenario kicks off, the PCs may distribute the gear available on the Montero. Okay, right here. So we'll make that, we'll show that to players and give them time, probably in our session zero, to hand those out. Okay. Personal agendas. All right. So this is the personal agendas deck. Yeah. So there's like specific cards that we want to make sure that we're giving out to people. All right. So show deck to players. I want to be able to actually choose the right cards, the right players. So I'm setting it up so that GMs, that's me, can actually see the front of the cards. Um, okay, save. So now, yeah, now if I choose, I can sort of see it. Oh God, they're so tiny, such tiny babies. So that doesn't help me too much. All right. What can we do to make this more usable? See, you can see the name of them here. I'm just going to have to figure out whose is who, which is annoying. Maybe, since I'm the only one who needs these cards, I could deal them to myself. Like all the Act 1 cards. And, uh, and then hand them out that way. I think that might be the way to fix it. All right, so let's look at the personal agendas. Again, we're getting into major spoilers here. All right, special order 966. At the start of the scenario, give Wilson's player the card entitled special order 966 in addition to their agenda. At the end of each act, collect the agendas from the players and evaluate them individually. If you feel the players actively advance their PC's agenda despite significant personal risk or sacrifice, 
announce this and award them one story point. Don't reveal the actual agendas to the group. They should remain hidden until the end of the scenario. Only original PCs have pre-written personal agendas. NPCs have only one agenda that remains the same for the entire. So at least the NPCs actually have an agenda. So if the players have a character that dies, they still have a way to earn a story point. Even if they have to switch characters to one of the NPCs that are not part of the original five. All right. One of the crew members on the Montero is a synthetic undercover agent named Lucas working for BioNational, a rival to Wayland Utani. After the players have chosen PCs, decide which of them is Lucas. When you hand out personal agendas, replace the chosen PC's agendas with Lucas's agendas. At the start of the scenario, give Lucas's player the card entitled Note to Lucas in addition to their Act 1 agenda. Lucas can be an NPC if you prefer. Okay. I did have someone who requested to be an android. Um... But I will have to talk this over with them and make sure that's okay, because since this is a cinematic scenario, it is expected there's going to be kind of inter-character conflict, um, a lot of death. There could be player-caused death and things like that. So I don't want to put someone in the situation where they could turn heel if that's not something they're comfortable with, because for players that can be... Um, a less than ideal circumstance. Um, it doesn't always feel good. So I'll have to figure that out before we get into our game. The main thing here is that if Lucas is not yet revealed, they play their character like a human. So Faye will still use human roles for all their roles, including making panic rolls and stuff because Lucas is disguised. But if someone sees Lucas take a critical injury, that will automatically reveal Lucas because androids don't have red blood. Um, and after that point, they can follow android rules. Otherwise, if someone sees Lucas doing betrayer things, that can also be the reveal as well. Um, okay. At that point, though, I should take control of Lucas and let the player pick a new character. Okay. It might just be easier if Lucas is an NPC then, but we'll see. I will talk to the player that asked about it and see what they want to do. That's the basic. So in session zero, my plan, because that's our first session that's coming up, is to first go over um, how the dice work since we have the stress dice and the regular dice. And since the players I'm playing with aren't as familiar with this publisher, so they're not used to the like sixes are success rule um, that this system and things like uh, Tales from the Loop and stuff uses. Um, so I'll go over that, make sure they're comfortable with that. I'll let them, I will show them the map and introduce the story that's happening, that they're a freighter that's making this trade run and what they're carrying. Um, I will have them look through the player characters and make a choice. I will show them their ship map, talk through what they have, and then show them the list of gear that they can assign out to the different characters, because it's pretty limited. So they'll have to decide who gets what. We'll hand out personal agendas, and I wish when you moused over them, it showed 
like the name or something like that. I think that would make it a lot easier. But at least, even though the text is small, I can see where it says Act 1 versus 2 versus 3. So I can pull all the Act 1 cards to myself and then hand them out from there. That will be fine. Okay. All right, so that's session zero. We'll give them their personal agendas so they have an idea going into it of what is actually, like, what to prepare for as far as what their character's motivations are for the game. Um, I'll talk about what story points actually mean, since that's the main driver of actually following the personal agenda. So from a game perspective, obviously personal agenda is, and here I can just pull some so that we can take a look here. But here's like Cham's act one agenda. Help your fellow crewmates as best you can. Okay. This gives a role-playing hook for that character, like a way that they should expect to play that character to help the characters be more real and to help them get into those characters quickly. Um, but it also, in order to encourage that role-playing to actually happen instead of however they decide to play the game, um, this is going to, and that's this one, right? Oh, that's a different one. Okay, so right. All right. Um, you know, it actually gives them a reason to follow those role-playing hooks instead of ignoring them because there's a in-game reward for doing so. So we'll do that. Um, I'll show them the map, talk through all of that stuff, and that's where we will start the game or start pick up the next time. So session zero must be getting them into roll 20, getting those introductory elements handled. And then once they've picked their characters, as we talk through how the roles work, we can talk through where to find those on here. I haven't looked at this character sheet yet, so okay. So I'm assuming, as with most things roll 20, So here we can see they got two sixes. That's the only thing that matters. So if you're not playing this with the custom dice, you'd use a fistful of D6s <laughs> and you're going to only look at sixes if you're talking about your regular dice. Um, obviously, if they're talking about stress dice, then you care about things other than sixes. Um, I believe so stress level. If I increase that, does that automatically put in my, yes. Okay. So as you increase your stress level in here, it automatically starts adding in those stress dice. And again, this one didn't do anything. So cool. Very cool. I'll stop modifying those. This is a cool character sheet. Okay. Oh, interesting. Okay, so I'll have to talk through talents as well because they'll each have talents that I haven't seen. I'll remind them that they have a place to write in their personal agenda so it's easier to remember. Okay, and then they can make roles secret if they want to. Good to know. All right, so I will talk through the character sheets as well. So that's perfect. All right, that looks really cool. All right. So I have a good idea of what session zero will look like. Let's look at these other decks. Let's uh, go in here and look at them this way. I feel like 
Like this one makes sense to keep um, normal. We'll have to like, yeah. Those are the initiative cards. Those get dealt out randomly. These ones I have to be able to see. Let's look at what these are. All right, these are the other NPCs. I just, okay, interesting. Um, items, okay. So as they, I'm just looking through here. Yeah, we'll probably need some of these as reference. So this is another one where I always get to see the cards so I can give things to people safe. Okay. I mean, I don't know when I'm going to need these yet, but I think for all of the decks, I'm just going to give myself the ability to choose them or draw them because uh, that makes sense. Perfect. Okay. That's session zero. So for session one, what we'll do, um, so just so you know, if you're watching or listening to this and you are not a patron, session zeros are patron only. So they go onto our Patreon feed um, for our patrons to see or listen to uh, before the start of the game. Otherwise, everyone else doesn't get to see them that set up until after. So um, because the rest of our listeners and viewers wouldn't have the setup, we'll start the session as a good reminder by talking through the setup again. So doing the box text, we'll show the map um, and then we'll get into the game. So let's look through this for our, again, sorry for the traffic noises. All right. So the Monteros diverted to check out a distress signal sent by the Cronus, a science exploration ship that has been missing for three quarters of a century. The crew of the Montero investigate and find few remaining Cronus crew in stasis and the ship overrun by alien creatures. As they attempt to transfer the survivors to the Montero, the Starfighter's reactor is set to overload by one of the crew, who has orders to bring back the xenomorphic materials the Cronus is carrying. With their ship destroyed, the Montero crew is forced to repair the Cronus instead. All right, so the Montero is set to overload, so they're forced to stay on the Cronus, which has all this craziness happening on it. All right, the crew finds themselves caught between corporate agents who put their mission and paycheck ahead of human lives, the crew of the Cronus who are suffering from an infection that is turning them into monsters, feral alien creatures that are out for blood, and a murderous android who wants to stop Waylon Yutani from getting their hands on anything alien. Just when the Montero crew discovered that they too might be infected, pirates attempt to seize the ship. Um, so, does the crew want to stop a dangerous biological weapon from getting into the wrong hands, or do they want to become very, very rich? Okay, so let's give ourselves some background. The Cronus was going to attempt to locate samples of chemical agent blah blah blah. They deciphered part of the data transmission, went to the Draconis system, a small planetoid dubbed LV. 1113, tucked away in the planetary debris belt shared by the sons of the trinary star system. The chemical was discovered there, but some of it had been deployed, causing mutations in the planet's life forms. All right, so we'll have to find that on the map as well in case it comes up as a clue. While the science team modified and experimented with what they called 26 draconis strain of the black liquid, members of the crew became infected with 
moat pathogen spores, causing them to give birth to bloodbursters, which matured into neomorphs. Chaos broke out, there was mutiny, science module on the Cronus was ejected and left behind, surviving crew escaped the planetoid. Discovering that some among them had been infected before departing, the remaining scientists used a derivative of the 26 Draconis strain to inoculate the crew against the Neomorph spores. Doctors were unaware that their cure was not completely safe, um, that it would cause the inoculated to mutate into abominations. Some of the inoculated began to transform, others didn't, um, so the crew of the Cronus failed to make the correlation. Uh, they barricaded themselves on cryodeck, leaving the ship synthetic named Ava to maintain the ship and put themselves in stasis, hoping for a miracle. After being caught in a micrometeorite storm, navigation control failed on the Cronus. Comms array was damaged. Ava was attacked by the abominations while attempting to repair the engines. Life support failed. Ship went into deep cold. The crew remained safe in hypersleep chambers. The creatures went to a state of suspended animation. This all happened within two days of leaving 1113. Since then, the Cronus has been adrift, barreling along at sublight speeds for decades. All right, so the inoculation works 95% of the time, but there is a significant risk of the black liquid derivative going too far, recoding the DNA of the inoculated and transforming them into zombie-like abominations. I do feel like I have to say for the record, in this time that we live in, this is not how vaccines work. <laughs> so if this is something you're worried about in real life, this is very much science fiction. Um, so in real life, vaccines are good. They do not mutate in your body and cause weird things. Get your vaccines. Um, but in this game, they're injecting something weird and random that they don't really know much about into people. So obviously it's causing issues. All right. So... The abomination handout, very basic. Okay, cool. Good to know. That could be used as a handout if they find out information about it, so that makes sense. All right, so that's the background. Um, so obviously, let's look at... This is the ship that they're going to be boarding. Wow, there's a lot of information on this ship. Okay, cool. So... Cryo deck versus main deck. Okay, Wow, there's so much. Okay, that's cool, because this is where the main part of the game takes place. So it makes sense that this is the bigger map. It has legends for all of the things they can encounter. Oh, wow, there's even more floors. Okay. Interesting. Okay, cool. So very good to know. We will need, I just want to see token page. Holy moly. These maps are really big. You can tell because I have to zoom way out to see the whole thing. So we have these kind of default player and NPC tokens. It does make me wonder. Okay, gotcha. We'll have to assign tokens or else this is going to be very confusing for where everyone is. But I like that it's kind of set up in a way that makes it, it's like, on a map, they just have little indicators of things. So, cause it's using that like <laughs> future old school technology <laughs> that we're used to from the movies. Okay. So start of session one, 
they find out that they're getting this distress signal and they're being diverted. But let's get into, okay, there's close-ups of each of those. So that's good for me to know. Okay. So let's look at these events. All right, the following section contains events you can spring on the players divided into act one, two, and three. So cinematic story has three acts. There's new personal agendas for each act, unless they are having to switch to an NPC because of a death. Um, and then they keep the same agenda throughout the whole thing. These events don't all need to occur and they don't need to occur in the order listed. Instead, see the events as an arsenal of drama for you to use as you see fit. Some events are mandatory and these are indicated as such. Don't forget to give new personal agendas at the start of each act. All right. When the PCs enter the Cronus, don't bombard them with events right away. Work on building the atmosphere. Uh, there's plenty to discover. Only when you feel the need to up the tempo should you start using events. Okay, so session one will probably be act one, depending on how long it takes. Obviously, if this scenario takes as long as the internet will have us believe, each act may be multiple sessions. So let's see. Eager to be done with this run and collect a paycheck, the crew of the Montero wakes up to prep the ship for unloading. They gather in the galley to eat. Use this time to have the players introduce their PCs to each other. For the first shift, all PCs count as dehydrated due to the effects of hypersleep. As the PCs go about their duties, they begin to notice that things aren't quite right. So mother reports an approaching ship, perhaps a colonial picket ship protecting Sutter's world or a cargo inspector when there is none. A sensor diagnosis leads to the conclusion that there was a sensor malfunction and nothing more. Okay. Sutter's world doesn't respond to hails. There's no return ping from their beacon tower, but that's because the Montero is nowhere near the colony and is instead in deep space. Navigation star charts are off. Another contact rule has PCs determine they're nowhere near Sutter's world. They're in deep space between stars. They've been awakened early. All right, so Mother signals that she wants to talk to Captain Miller. She informs Captain Miller that they've picked up a distress call from an unknown ship and need to investigate. The mysterious transmission is too garbled for the PCs to determine who sent it. The crew needs to triangulate its location and trace it to its source. The captain must stop the crew from their preparations and explain to them what is going on. As company rules say the PCs need to investigate, not doing so means they will forfeit their shares and get no money for the run for impact. The sensors detect a ship approaching on a collision course with the Montero. Mother warns of imminent impact, klaxons on the bridge rage as warning lights flash red. A small area without stars grows closer and closer, and the PCs realize it's a derelict without any running lights or beacons. Brace for collision, Mother drones. The pilot needs to make a piloting check at minus two to avoid the collision. Failure means severe damage to the Montero, crippling FTL and causing explosive decompression in some sections. Repairs will take 18 hours or three shifts. The crew are unharmed. Mother informs the crew that the ghost ship was the source of the distress call. Engines dead, inertias carry the derelict along at her last achieved speed of 0.04 light. With no running or interior lights on the ghost ship, the PCs can't identify her until they become, until they come about and catch up to her. Coming alongside the ghost ship and kicking on the floods, what they see is something out of the history books, the Cronus, launched in 2110. Show 
the cover page of the booklet. Is that right? I mean, cool. If you have the physical copy, is that this picture? No. Is that, why, why you do this? Hmm, all right. So we may not be able to do that. I'll have to look into that and see if I can find that image. Cause what the heck? Mother informs the crew that a salvage operation is mandated by company rules. These are their priorities. Recover scientific data and samples. Escort the salvaged Cronus to Anchorhead or another Weyland-Yutani facility. Save crew members on the Cronus. Um, Mother also provides floor plans to the Cronus for boarding action. Give the players the deck plans handout. So that's all of these. The PCs must, must match the ship speed. Okay, so basically we start on the Montero. There's time to introduce... There's time to talk through how they divvied up the supplies since we're doing that in session zero. Um, the ship's computer summons the captain. The captain leaves, gets the information, and comes back to the crew and has to talk them to them about what they're going to be doing. Then, because there's no beacons on the derelict Cronus, they almost hit it, or they do hit it, depending on how rolls go. And then Mother informs them that they are contractually obligated to board the ship. Okay, so that's something automatically... So they get in. The first thing they see is a body, but the body is not right. This is the first thing that adds stress to all characters. So what's nice about this is as soon as they enter the ship, not only do they technically get access to a new weapon, um, but all of them get to go through the process of adding one stress to their sheet together so that we can make sure that it's clear how to do that before we get to a point where people might be splitting up. If the PCs are using motion trackers, trackers they detect movement within the corridors of the Cronus some zones away. Um, the blips disappear before they track down the source, which gives another stress. The source is either the damaged android Ava, suffering memory damage and wandering aimlessly, or an adult neomorph that's been awakened from hibernation by the PC's entry, or both. PCs will encounter them later. All right, so these are, again, all of the things I can throw at them. There are three mandatory events. The rest, again, are optional, and I do that as things need to get pushed along. Interesting. But the mandatory events is that the mother on the Cronus at some point comes online, powers up the reactor and life support systems. Um, that happens without them controlling it. So it should be not only a little startling, but remember this turns on lights and starts moving air around. Um, but the air is not fresh because it's not a working system. Um, once the life support systems come online, the Cronus crew gets awakened from hypersleep, um, which will be announced. I will need to know which crew is where so I know who are playable NPCs or not. Um, and then the crew starts to have issues um, since some of them are infected. And there is... 
um, box text for what happens when Bloodburster comes out. Okay. If the PCs just try to get the fuck out of there, then the Cronus Mother triggers the destruction of the Montero because of Special Order 966 from Waylon yutani And of course, um, one of the players, if they play this NPC, hopefully they do, um, has knowledge of 966. Okay. Cool. And then that leads us into Act 2. All right, so the first session, however far we get through some of these, is really about setting up why they're having to go onto this other ship, starting the exploration. It's a huge map, so it does give players an excuse to split up to explore. Um, As they're going through it, events can start happening. But the main events that should hopefully bring the PCs back together or start things going is that the um, power comes on on the ship, the crew awakens, and then things start going to hell. So, cool. That's great. I think that will work out really well. So, things that I will want to do before session one is make sure to have to know what all my tokens are and get those ready if I need to. Um, to go through the Cronus map since it's so big um, and make sure that I'm comfortable with things that could happen in each area as they begin to explore. Know what the icons mean in case people have questions since these do show up on the Montero as well but the Montero map being the like less important map doesn't have the key on it so you'll want to have that to talk through some of these symbols for them and then making sure I know for all the gear that's listed in the Montero sheet being able to have that information so I can tell them what each of these things does as they're making their decisions for how to hand them out um, will want to they'll probably have questions about what their actual stats are Um, so I will make sure to get those that is good to know okay oh the last thing I need to do is pick out some ambient sounds for where they are the cool thing is like, um, since Roll20 works with a tabletop audio, I know that, yeah, they have an Astromo track, as well as some other sci-fi and horror tracks that I can put in, but at least they have some good kind of default stuff that matches the theme of this environment. So there's a little preview there of what that sounds like. So that should be familiar. Um, Tabletop audio is great for capturing these sort of settings. Like when he really goes for it as far as trying to match with something that exists, like he has one that's like um, Stranger Things style and stuff like that. They're really good. 
All right, so I'll get those ready as well and make a playlist so that that will be easier for me to manage while I'm GMing the rest of this business. All right, so that is prep for session zero with a preview of session one. I feel like that's enough for now to make sure that I can tell them what I need to during session zero. Um, And then, of course, for prepping for session one, I'll look ahead at the events of the rest of the game so that I have a feeling for where things connect. Um, But otherwise, for session zero, just knowing where they'll be when they start is enough for me to kind of look ahead and prepare them for some things that may happen as far as making sure I'm explaining certain rules, um, making sure that I'm prepared for where certain things are that I'm going to have to talk about. So yeah, that's kind of what this will look like. So thank you so much for hanging out with me. Oh, that's the other thing I want to find. There's Draconis. So I want to boop, get that on the map. I'll have to make these prettier. Um, But yeah, so this will be what I need to do for our game on Saturday. So perfect. Well, thank you all for hanging out with me. Um, I'm going to try to put this up right away. So this may go live just before our session zero, but it will definitely be live before session one. So if you have any advice for me running this scenario or this system, so remember, both of these things are new to me and to our group. Um, or you notice something that I got a little wonky or anything like that. Let me know. Put it in the comments. Um, send me something on Twitter. I'm at Barbarian Rainy. Um, just be careful to mark things with spoilers as necessary so that people who aren't looking to get spoilers, you know, don't have their face melted off by your comments. Um, if they include spoilers. So there we go. All right. Well, until next time, barbarians, spend your rage wisely um, so that you don't turn into an abomination and wish me luck as we get into playing this new system and new scenario. All right. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Barbarians, for listening to the Session Zero GM prep for our Alien RPG series. If you want to support our podcast, you can help us make more content by checking us out on patreon.com slash justbarbarianthings. Our group's Session Zero episodes are only available to patrons, and podcasts with video versions like this one premiere early for our patrons as well. If you like the music in our intro and outro, it's Nostromo on Tabletop Audio. Check them out at tabletopaudio.com for free music and ambiance for use in your games. Links to everything I've mentioned and more can be found in the description. And until next time, barbarians, spend your rage wisely, lest it turns to panic.